Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-host, Melissa Colston. Hello. Michael Cunningham also joins us today. Welcome, Michael. Hello. Thanks for having me. Michael, would you like to tell the Books and Bites listeners a little about what you do here at the library and the kind of books you like to read? Sure. Um, I do a little bit of everything. Um, <laughs> I'm a, I work up front at customer service, work at reference, do a little programming here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and now doing podcasting. <laughs> um, as for my reading taste, I, I read a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, nonfiction, fantasy, science fiction, but I really like horror a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, darker the better. I notice we've had a lot of um, horror displays <laughs> lately. Yes. Um, <laughs> I recently got to go to the StokerCon in Grand Rapids, which is the Horror Writers Association. Uh-huh. Like and Bram Stoker? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> actually, That's so cool. Yeah. actually got to meet Dacre Stoker, his great grandnephew. Wow. Oh, very cool. Because he just finished a novel, uh, Dracul. So mm-hmm. that was really cool. So, like, I've been really hitting the horror. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Books and Bites listeners will know who to go to if they if they want to get Definitely. scared. Yeah, because I don't <laughs> think it's either you or me no. at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> Michael's your man. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Okay. So, today we are going to talk a little bit about summer reads. Um, I know Melissa and I have talked a little bit about summer reads before and the kinds of books that we look for um how about you michael do you have a specific thing you like to read in the summer um you know things are like maybe thrillers um Mm -hmm. you know i do read a lot of horror but you know more stuff that's fast paced you Mm -hmm. know if you can get to i mean a couple of sittings Mm -hmm. um you know usually like you know if you're you know at at a cabin or out you know, vacation somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you prefer books with a faster pace in the summer? I think so. Yeah, I think because there's so much to do outside that doesn't involve sitting under a blanket trying to be cozy. <laughs> yeah, I definitely appreciate fast paced, and I don't know. Everything in summer is like hot and fast, and you're moving from place to place. I don't know. It, it makes sense to me. How about mm-hmm. you? Well, I mean, often that's what I think of, but then sometimes I also just want a book that, like, maybe if I'm at a cabin, I have more extended time to read and really be immersed in a book. So a book that really takes you to another world um, Mm -hmm. is sometimes more desirable in the summer, I think. Yeah, it kind of depends on what you're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we'll have a little something for everyone (laughs) on today's Books and Bites. Um, So, Melissa, would you like to start off? Sure. So, sort of in that vein of faster reads, um, I actually have two mysteries to talk about, and I do not read many mysteries in general. (laughs) Um, But the first book, first mystery that I've got, is actually a series that I love, and I always wish there were more of them. Uh, it's the Lady Sherlock series by Sherry Thomas. It is the, the first in the series is called A Study in Scarlet Women. 
And as you can imagine from the series name, the Lady Sherlock series, uh, it features Charlotte Holmes, who ends up masquerading as Sherlock Holmes in order to put her observation and deduction talents to use. A study in Scarlet Women does a lot of character and plot development that isn't, wouldn't be as necessary for a male version of Sherlock. For example, explaining why an unmarried woman of good society ends up living with another woman and leaving her family and all of the other things that go along with that. Um, but this groundwork helps set up the stage for future installments. I love just about everything about these books, uh, from the intricate mysteries to Charlotte's sisters, to the things that aren't quite explained, uh, to the ways that Thomas plays with the source material and brings a new spin to the well-worn stories. I listened to the first two in the series, and I often found that I missed crucial details mentioned in passing. So if you're a listener, uh, I would recommend not speeding this one up, or any of them. Uh, I there were times where, you know, I'd be listening along and be like, I have no idea what's going on. That's great. Okay. I don't even <laughs> know where I need to go back to. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a lot easier when you're reading a physical copy to just flip back a couple pages and be mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, there we are. Um, but I ended up reading the third book and had a much easier time following the plot. Uh, these books are, are not fluffy. They're very convoluted. Uh, so if you're looking for something to demand your attention and keep it, they might be for you. I will say that I think the second and the third in this series are better paced. The first one isn't, like there's just a lot more setup. Uh, but the second and third, like they continue in the same storyline with similar characters. So you, I didn't have as hard a time keeping up with all of the twists and turns. Uh, the fourth in the series comes out in October and I'm really excited to see what comes next. At one of their first meetings, Charlotte Holmes and Mrs. Watson share tea, and Mrs. Watson boasts of her cook's talent for plum cake. Charlotte then says, well, I've never met a plum cake I didn't like. <laughs> so I thought that would be the perfect thing to pair with the Lady Sherlock series. You can find a recipe for a stone fruit tea cake that sounds just perfect in the book Rustic Fruit Desserts by Corey Schreiber and Julie Richardson. All of the recipes in the book look amazing and made me want to hurry to the farmer's market to find something good to bake. So my first recommendation is Air Rat by Christopher Golden. Um, this book actually won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Novel back in 2017, which is given out by the Horror Writer Association every year. Um, it begins with a massive earthquake rocking Turkey that reveals a huge cavern on the side of Mount Ararat that shouldn't be there. An adventuring couple, Miriam and Adam, gather an expedition replete with archaeologists and race to be the first group to investigate this new find. Um, however, they discover the cave is actually the inside of a massive wooden ship and begin to wonder if the legends are actually true. Did Noah's Ark actually land atop of Mount Ararat? Um, as they continue to explore the ship, they uncover a sealed sarcophagus that contains a skeleton with what appears to be horns growing out of its head. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> so they call in Ben Walker, who works for a shadowy group called the National Science Foundation, to help examine this new find. And as a massive blizzard bears down on the mountain, they race to finish the expedition. Members of the expedition begin to disappear one by one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So this is definitely like a supernatural thriller. 
and it it the reason I love it because this races like a lightning a lightning fast pace and really mm-hmm. ratchets up the tension, um, and so it's like a great choice for like a beach or a poolside read. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really creates a chilling atmosphere with several great chilling scares. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, the end definitely does not pull any punches and even manages to ruminate a little bit on religion and good versus evil throughout the novel. If you're into film, this book reminded me a lot of John Carpenter's The Thing meets the Denzel Washington film Fallen. So this book is the first in a series with a character, Ben Walker. Um, the second one was recently published, The Pandora's Box, and actually it deals with the discovery of actual Pandora's Box in northern Iraq. Mm. So, um, and I think a third one actually in the series comes out in 2020. Um, but my pairing for this book, since the characters knock back copious amounts of coffee to you know stay awake and, uh, and warm and alert, um, I chose uh, Turkish coffee. So mm-hmm. I found a recipe in gourmet coffee, tea, and chocolate drinks by Matthew Taluski. Um, there's an excellent recipe in there. I'm making Turkish coffee that actually um, you don't need the that iconic Jev's copper pot to mm-hmm. make. Um, I actually had a friend who went to Turkey one summer, and when he came back, he made it in the kitchen, and it was very good. So can you explain? the difference between Turkish coffee and other coffees? Um, you cook it in the little dip traditionally in a little coffee a little copper pot mm-hmm. um, and usually they'll use embers they'll pile embers around it um, this one you can make um, in a saucepan um, and boil the water and you pour it on grounds mm-hmm. and I think you let it steep a little bit yeah, it's very, very thick. Yeah. And the grounds tend to stay at the bottom of the pot. From In my experience, I think I know what you're talking about. The little pot that has like a handle coming off the side. Yeah. Comes yeah. like straight off the side. And that's what you pour the coffee out of into a cup that's separate. But there's always a bunch of grounds at the bottom. And it it's thicker even than like espresso. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really, really heavy stuff. Yeah. But it's great. And it will wire you for yeah. sound. Well, I was going to say that may explain why my husband likes it. <laughs> because oh, it's that sounds like the kind of coffee he likes to drink. Well, and I will say, <laughs> if you aren't up to making it, um, there are a couple of places in Lexington that offer Turkish-style coffee, including Habibi's, which is a bakery on Nicholasville Road. Yeah. yeah. I was on my way to work one day, and I was like, I need a snack, and I'm really tired. And I stopped there and got a, a slice of baklava and a Turkish coffee, and it was the best thing. And so I will there. also add, though, knowing Scott has made this mistake before, it's at a place on Southland Drive, um, so it may be different at other places, that um, it's run by Armenians, and they really don't like it when you ask for Turkish coffee. So <laughs> so you might oh, yeah, want to make just, sure... Just order coffee. You don't the, need to specify the, where it's from. The <laughs> nationality of the people that are serving you the coffee. That's a good point. <laughs> So my first book is The House at the Edge of Night by Catherine Banner. I picked up this book because I was looking for a read-alike for Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. The books do have some similarities, 
Both are set at least partially on remote Italian islands, and both feature several storylines that span many years. Both are also perfect summer reads. But where Beautiful Ruins jumps back and forth between different time periods and locations, The House at the Edge of Night lingers in one place and with one family, the Espositos, who live on Castellamar, an island off the coast of Sicily. The book begins with the story of Amadeo, a foundling from Florence who moves to Castellamar as the village doctor. In the book's opening chapter, two babies are born on the same day, a rare occurrence on Castellamar. We soon learn that Amadeo may have fathered both his wife's child and the child of Carmela, the Count's wife. Quote, it was the greatest scandal ever to sweep Castellamar, writes Banner. It was also the most thrilling entertainment, and several people took the day off work especially to follow the development. Unquote. When the Count forces Amadeo out as doctor, Am- Amadeo decides to purchase and restore the House at the Edge of Night, a bar that closed while he was a soldier during the First World War. What follows is a sweeping saga of four generations of the Esposito family, one that ends around the time of the 2008 financial crisis. In addition to Amadeo's story, the book also tells the story of his daughter, Maria Grazia, a strong, intelligent woman like her mother who wishes to stay and run the bar instead of go to college, her English husband, Robert, who washes ashore on Castellamar near the end of World War II, their bickering sons, Sergio and Giuseppino, and Sergio's daughter, Lena, another strong woman who must save the bar from financial ruin. Interwoven throughout the book are Sicilian folktales, which Amadeo collects in a little red book, along with stories of St. Agatha, the island's patron saint. They provide a touch of magical realism. Castellamar is a place where the caves weep, where the villagers can be both kind and astonishingly cruel, and where visitors and residents alike always feel the possibility of miracle. If you were to visit the house at the edge of night, you'd most likely be served limoncello and a rice ball. According to the book Tasting Italy, A Culinary Journey, rice balls are deep-fried balls of risotto and mozzarella, and though mostly eaten in Italian bars and cafes, are a great way for home cooks to use up leftover risotto. They sound delicious, but since the last thing I feel like doing in summer is firing up the deep fryer, I think I'll wait on trying one. In this heat, sampling limoncello is more my speed. So I tried a couple of different limoncello cocktails over the weekend. My favorite was a limoncello and gin cocktail with thyme. We'll link to the recipe on our blog. Have either of you ever had rice balls? No. Yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're called arancini, and they're it. It's rice and cheese formed into a ball, and then they're it's covered in breadcrumbs. So it's there's like a little armor on the outside, and there's usually a dip of some kind. I mean, it's rice and cheese deep fried. What what could be wrong with? Yeah, that? I mean, it sounds sounds amazing. So um, good. It also looked like it was kind of involved. To oh, do yeah. on your own. Oh, I mean, yeah. who makes 
risotto. I mean, it's like bar food, right? <laughs> you want to you get it when you someone have else, a drink and someone, someone else, else to make it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. definitely. You can get close with the cheddar tots from Tolly Hill. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite the same, but it's about as close as I've found nearby. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. You don't need to go to Italy. You just need to go to Tolly Yep. <laughs> So the other mystery that I've got to recommend is called Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. And it is also a mystery, but it's one that's set at a high school for magic. So you'll actually find this book in the fantasy category. Um, So this book has magic. It it is set at a magical high school. Um, But even if you're someone who never reads fantasy and hates the idea, hear me out. I have this to recommend for you. Uh, The protagonist is Ivy Gamble, and she's a private investigator who's been hired to investigate the gruesome murder of a teacher at the high school where her sister works. Ivy herself isn't magical and doesn't really know anything about magic or the magical world, Uh, but her sister is very magical and also very talented and impressive and beautiful, so you can imagine there's some tension there. Once Ivy arrives and begins investigating, she finds a lot of suspects and a lot of secrets. The book has drawn comparisons to the Magician series, and I can see why, because the students behave a lot more like actual teenagers than most of the kids that attend Hogwarts. Mostly a lot cruder and grosser than Hogwarts kids. But that's not really the focus of the book, so don't don't take my meaning ill there. It's just... Not a book for kids. Let me put it that way. Um, Anyway, I really enjoyed the world and the magical system that Gailey created, which feels fresh and sort of plausible, which in and of itself is a notable thing. Uh, It's set in California in the Bay Area, and like the setting doesn't feel, I don't know, there's just a lot about it that seems, you know, maybe a step down from most magical high school stories. Like it's set in a world where there isn't a lot of magic and the main character doesn't have magic so she's the outsider there and you're not getting as much of the magical stuff as you would in other books I don't know if that makes any sense but maybe if you read the book you'll understand (laughs) Um, anyway the characters have a lot of depth and they feel true to reality in the mistakes that they make and in the things that they care about The dialogue is good. The mystery itself is pretty engaging. And I really liked listening in on Ivy's thoughts as she interviews different characters and tries to piece together the truth. It's beautifully paced and it is a standalone novel. So it's a perfect quick summer read if you're looking for something, just one book to take with you on vacation and get it done. Um, It's, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of feelings at the end of it. They do a great job of character development, really good dialogue, and I don't know. I just really liked it, okay? (laughs) I hope more people read it. Anyway, as far as what to pair with Magic for Liars, uh, Ivy kind of reminds me of Jessica Jones, Marvel's supernatural private detective with an alcohol problem. Anyway, she's on one of her better nights, uh, Ivy shares a bottle of crisp, dry white wine with one of the other faculty members from Osthorne which is the school that she's investigating at. Uh, 
Anyway, something like that sounds just perfect for a summer evening spent reading a gritty mystery novel full of magic and bad decision making. Alright, so my uh, second recommendation surprise is uh, another horror novel. Um, <laughs> this one is A Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay, which also, it just won the 2018 Stoker Award for Best Novel. Um, so this book opens up with a couple, Eric and Andrew, and their adoptive daughter, Wynn, arriving at their vacation home in the northern New Hampshire wilderness, away from any people in self-service. Um, while Wynne is collecting grasshoppers in the front yard one morning, she is approached by a mountain of a man named Leonard who tells her he has to talk to her dads. Three more people show up, Redmond, Sabrina, and Adrian, wielding these twisted and frightening versions of gardening implements. Leonard tells Eric, Andrew, and Wynne that one of them has to be voluntarily sacrificed or the world will end. Um, I'll leave it there so not to really That's very dramatic. <laughs> what a cliffhanger. Um, I love this uh, this novel. It The point of view chapters from the characters really give you important insight into their psyche and really allows you to connect with them. Also loved about how Tremblay is famous for taking these worn out uh, horror tropes, in this case the whole home invasion one, and puts his own little spin on it. He's done it previously in a head full of ghosts with a demon possession. Mm-hmm. Um Another thing that Tremblay is famous for is he walks a razor-thin line with ambiguity and unreliable narrators, because mm-hmm. you don't really know, you know, is who's who to believe yeah, or who to, who to trust, mm-hmm. what the real truth is. And uh, yeah, right now he is the it guy in horror. To give everyone fair warning, this novel is quite bloody and pretty gut-wrenching. <laughs> um, okay. Sounds like sounds like one I might have to pass on. We'll take your word for it, maybe. <laughs> um, if you can't stomach to eat <laughs> while, while uh, reading this book, maybe it'd be better to eat before you read it. Um, <laughs> would be, um, I thought any kind of grilling fare would go really great with this novel. <laughs> um, since you're out, you are out in the cabin in the woods by lake. Um, I found this blue cheese sirloin burgers with a red wine onion jam from mm. Bobby Flay's Grill It um, cookbook. Um, I had one tasty. very similar to it at a Bobby Flay's Burger Palace in Philly several years ago. and It was awesome. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. No problem. And my second book is Less by Andrew Sean Greer. I read the Pulitzer Prize winning Less last summer. And while I really enjoyed the book the first time around, it didn't quite seem like a Pulitzer book to me. But then it's pretty rare for a comic novel to win the sorts of prizes that sometimes seem to value big issues above all else. Not that Less doesn't address big issues. Aging, death, and love are all pretty big ones in my book. In any case, I'm really glad Les did win the Pulitzer because otherwise I may have missed the magic that is the book's protagonist, ridiculous, spoony, and ultimately lovable Arthur Les. 
Les is a mid-list writer approaching his 50th birthday when he receives a wedding invitation from his much younger ex-boyfriend, Freddie. Les decides that the best way to avoid both his impending birthday and the wedding is to cobble together a, quote, ramshackle itinerary, unquote, of invited appearances at otherwise unappealing literary events. And so he embarks on a worldwide journey that includes a literary conference in Mexico, a writing retreat in India, a temporary teaching appointment in Berlin, and a prize ceremony in Italy, among others. Along the way, Les considers his relationship with Freddie and remembers his first serious relationship with a famous older poet, Robert. I loved following Les around the world on his misadventures. I winced and rooted for him the whole way and laughed. I've heard other people, including my colleague Melissa, say that they didn't find the book funny. I recently listened to the audiobook version and still found myself laughing out loud the second time around. However, I should clarify that the book is punctuated by humor rather than being dominated by it. Overall, the tone is bittersweet and tinged with enough sadness to keep it from being saccharine. The humor also likely appeals more to people with a writing or publishing background. In any case, if you like your summer reads to deliver a plate full of interesting characters and far-flung travel with sides of comedy and romance, then Les might be just the thing. In honor of Les's 50th birthday, go on a culinary journey with Christina Castella's book, A World of Cake, 150 Recipes for Sweet Traditions from Cultures Near and Far. With its recipes, photos, and interesting historical and cultural facts, A World of Cake is a great summer read itself, and will teach you about the kind of cake that might be served at every stop on Les's travels. Since he technically turns 50 in Morocco, a country where, according to Castella, quote, every meal is a special occasion, unquote, you might want to start with mahensha, or snake cake. As the name implies, it's an almond paste sweet made from rolled phyllo pastry that's coiled to look like a serpent and flavored with orange flower water and cinnamon. I can easily imagine it awaiting Les and his traveling companions on the little table they, quote, see sitting on the dune, set with olives and pita and glasses and wine chilling on ice, with the sun waiting more patiently than any camel for their arrival, unquote. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We produced it in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. To find out more about the library or the recording studio, visit our website at jesspublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com. 